You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host, Stuart Blues, and this is the second episode of Season 8. Before we get into it, let's break the ice as always. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know that cats only meow at humans? Absolutely crazy fact. They don't meow at each other. They develop that to communicate with us. Quite clever, really. Now it's time for the show's second and final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Past has no power to stop you from being present now. Only your grievance about the past can do that. That was from Eckhard Tolle. I believe that's how you say it, a spiritual teacher. This week's case was suggested by Arwen Llewellyn, Gina Willison, Jaden, and Amy via Instagram and email. Quite a popular case, clearly this one, suggested by four listeners. We're again back in the land of hard-to-pronounce words this week. Wales. I know some Welsh listeners that always get a kick out of how I butcher the pronunciation of Welsh names and locations. Apologies in advance. There are several locations within this episode, so my facts will focus on a specific region of the country. Here are your five quickfire facts about North Wales. 1. The first ever meeting of the Women's Institute in the UK was held in Clanferpul, Clanferpul, Anglesey, basically Anglesey, on September 16, 1915. Number two, the yew tree in St. Digane's Church in Langanu, Conny, Conwy, Jesus, is believed to be the second or third oldest living organism in the world, around four or five thousand years old. Three, Cardigan Bay, one I can pronounce, is home to the UK's largest dolphin pod. Four, Wales has more castles per square mile than anywhere else in the world, 641. There's loads in North Wales, it's a beautiful part of the country. And number five, the longest place name in Europe belongs to a town in North Wales. It's called... You didn't actually think that I was going to attempt that, did you? Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. Our villain this week was named Peter Howard Moore by his parents after he was born on September 19th, 1946. Somewhat of a miracle baby, Peter's birth came after a long period in which his parents' attempts to conceive failed. Edith Moore, his mum, was midway through her forties when Peter was born, for context. To Edith, her son was her pride and joy. The two had a close bond that grew stronger after his father's death. I don't know anything else about his dad. There's some discrepancy about where Peter was born, with some sources claiming it was St Helens in Merseyside and others claiming it was Kinmel Bay in Conwy County Borough. Peter grew up in a family home called Darlington House, located on St Asaph Avenue in Kinmel Bay. I tried my best to find it on Google Maps, but it appears now to be part of St Asaph Avenue's Bay Trading Estate. Kinmel Bay seems like a nice and quiet little seaside village. The average sold price for a property on St Asaph Avenue in the last 12 months was £238,562, slightly above average for Wales. 
My point here is that Peter lived in a nice area of the world throughout his childhood and had what some may consider a privileged upbringing. As he went through puberty and headed towards adulthood, Peter's imposing stature will no doubt have intimidated some of his peers. He was a tall and well-built lad. Upon completing his secondary education studies, Peter initially went into the family business of providing caravan supplies, such as gas bottle refills, for the seasonal holidaymakers. Other jobs came and went whilst Peter was still attempting to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. An epiphany wouldn't come until 1990 when he was 44 years old. You see, Peter was a huge fan of the movies. His passion for cinema began when he was taken to see Walt Disney's Lady and the Tramp at the Odeon in the neighbouring seaside town of Rill. Peter reckoned he was six when he saw it, but the film came out in 1955 when he'll have been nine. Perhaps he was looking at the age he thought he was upside down. Seeing as he grew up in the 40s and 50s, it's no surprise that movies from that era were close to his heart, as were some of the more well-known flicks from the swinging 60s. Bringing things back to Peter's epiphany, he decided to open a cinema of his own in 1990 after meeting a man called Michael Blakemore. Michael had previously been the manager of a cinema in Birmingham and ignited the fire within Peter to do the same in North Wales. That first cinema was opened in Bagilt, a town located some 20 miles east of Kinmel Bay and was well received by the locals. Peter wanted to show the community that you didn't have to visit one of the big chain cinemas to have a great family day out at the movies. On Saturday mornings, Peter's cinema ran a kids club that allowed the local children to watch a movie with a bag of sweets for an extremely reasonable price. Prices remained low throughout the week, with a family of five being granted entry for £5, which is around £11 today. You'd be hard-pressed to purchase one ticket for £11 these days, let alone five. The cinema business thrived, and before long, Peter had other locations open in Holyhead, Holywell, and Blyneye Festinog. Although Peter's love for cinema was no doubt genuine, he had a sinister dark side that would shock his cinema's patrons were they to learn of it. Peter was a Nazi fanatic. He collected Nazi memorabilia such as flags, military outfits and handcuffs. They lay amongst his childhood teddies in his room at the family home where he continued to live with his mother. Around Kinmel Bay, Peter was known as an eccentric due to his unusual dress sense. He only wore clothes that were black with some sources claiming his unofficial nickname in the village was the Man in Black. Having said that, other sources claim the media dubbed him that after his arrest. In late 1994, Peter's beloved mother Edith passed away when she was well into her 80s. He was devastated, and his grief wasn't helped by several of his pets dying soon after. Two dogs, the family cat, and Peter's koi carp all suddenly died within a short space of each other. It's thought by some that those events set something off within Peter that ultimately turned him into the vicious serial killer he would soon become. Let's fast forward to September 1995. 56-year-old John Henry Roberts, known locally as Henry, was a retired railway worker that spent most of his time at the Sportsman's Inn in Kergilog, where everyone knew his name. To be fair, everyone in the Anglesey village of Kergilog knew who Henry Roberts was. Like Peter, he was seen as an eccentric, but with one major difference. Henry was the kind of chap that wouldn't say boo to a goose, a stark contrast to the sort of person Peter Moore was. The cottage Henry lived in at the edge of the village was unkept, to say the least, which is something that played a part in bringing Peter into his life. When driving home from Holyhead, Peter would often slow down and take a long look at Henry's cottage from his van. For some reason, it fascinated him. 
One evening in September 1995, Peter decided to stop in the village of Kegelog to get a closer view of the cottage, something he'd do sneakily and on foot. The estimated date range for the following events is September 22nd to 25th, only a few days after Peter's 49th birthday. Make of that what you like. The cottage's lights were on, so someone was clearly at home, but that didn't discourage Peter. Dressed from head to toe in black and sporting a Nazi-style cap, Peter entered the garden and was soon confronted by a disgruntled Henry Roberts. What the intruder didn't know at that moment was that Henry shared his love of Nazi memorabilia. Perhaps recognising the cap Peter was wearing, Henry shouted, I am not Jewish, I am not a Jew. Happy that his outfit intimidated Henry as intended, Peter continued towards the defenceless homeowner and withdrew a five-inch hunting knife he'd purchased a few days earlier. He then proceeded to stab Henry a total of 27 times. 14 of those stab wounds were made to his stomach and chest. Once he had fallen to the ground, Peter removed Henry's trousers and stabbed him 13 more times in the buttocks. Peter then entered Henry's house, stole a Nazi-style plaque, walked back to his van, got in, drove off and headed home. Another point to add here is that Henry Roberts was gay, as is, we think, Peter Moore. The similarities between the two men seem too strange to be a coincidence, but from what I can tell, that's all it is. Living in semi-isolation meant that Henry's body wasn't found right away. It was only when Thomas Wright, a fellow regular at the Sportsman's Inn, realised he hadn't seen Henry at the pub for a few days that he thought he'd better check on him. On September 27th, 1995, Thomas found Henry's body in his garden. His pet dog, a Labrador, had been trapped inside the cottage since the murder occurred. The police were called and a murder investigation was launched, but the officers had no idea who had committed the heinous crime. They had no leads, and even more worryingly, they struggled to think of a possible motive. The following month, October 1995, saw another innocent man murdered by Peter Moore. Like Henry Roberts, 28-year-old Edward Carthy, known to his family and friends as Ted, was gay. Edward was from the Birkenhead suburb of Tranmere in Merseyside, making him the only English person to have his life cruelly taken away by serial killer Peter Moore. For some geographical context, Merseyside is an English county located across the River Dee from the North Welsh county of Flintshire, which neighbours Peter Moore's home county of Denbyshire. I only mention Edward's sexuality because some people believe Peter Moore was similar to serial killer Colin Ireland, who exclusively killed gay men. That's not quite the case with Peter Moore, but it's understandable that people make the comparison. Colin Ireland was active in 1993, just two years before Peter Moore. If you want to hear more about that story, check out the fifth episode of my third season. Edward Carthy was struggling mentally when he met Peter Moore at Paco's Bar in Liverpool City Centre. The man he'd been seeing tragically took his own life at the couple's flat in Tranmere. Therefore, Edward was incredibly vulnerable, something Peter Moore took advantage of. On that fateful Friday in October 1995, Peter approached Edward and said all the right things. He charmed Edward that night and offered him a lift home. Rather than driving Edward back to his flat in Tranmere, Peter drove Edward 20 miles south of St Asaph Avenue to Clockenog Forest. En route, Edward sensed he was in danger and attempted to flee by opening the passenger door of Peter's van. Unfortunately, Peter had locked the doors. After parking in a remote area just off the main forest road, Peter claimed that Edward asked him if he was a Nilsson-type fellow, 
He was referring to Scottish serial killer Dennis Nilsson, whose story I covered in my Season 5 special. Peter calmly replied, Yes, before stabbing Edward three times in the stomach with the same hunting knife he'd used to murder Henry Roberts a month earlier. Edward's body was then dumped down a nearby embankment where it would remain undiscovered for two months. Despite being the second person killed by Peter Moore, Edward Carthy's body was the last to be found. I'll come on to that later in the story. 49-year-old Keith Randalls was a family man with two kids and lived in Cheshire's county town of Chester. As a job, Keith was employed as a night watchman overseeing the security of a building site just off Junction 6 of the A55. When all the workers had left for the day, Keith came in to ensure nobody nicked any of the machinery or equipment. Whilst on site, Keith stayed in a caravan. Much like Henry Roberts' cottage, it was that lone caravan in the middle of a building site that caught the attention of Peter Moore as he drove home from his cinema in Holyhead one November evening. Keith was last seen alive at 9.30pm on November 29, 1995. He'd popped out for a late chippy tea. A few hours later, he heard a knock on the caravan door. On the other side was a man dressed from head to toe in black clothes. It was Peter Moore. Before Keith could comprehend what was happening, Peter had dragged him out of the caravan and stabbed him 12 times. The murderer then calmly returned to his vehicle and continued his journey home. Keith Randall's body was discovered the following morning at around 7.30am by the workers arriving at the site to commence their shift. Because Keith wasn't gay, the police made no connection between his and Henry Roberts' murders, despite occurring around 10 miles apart on the island of Anglesey. Both men were chosen by Peter Moore because they happened to be located near the A55 on the route home from his cinema in Holyhead. The last person murdered by Peter was 40-year-old Anthony Davis, known to his family and friends as Tony. Originally from Clandulas in Conway County Borough, Anthony was married and, like Keith Randalls, had two kids. On December 17, 1995, Anthony left his marital home around 11pm telling his wife that he was nipping out to see his auntie, who just returned home after a spell in hospital. That was merely a cover story. Anthony was, in fact, heading for an area of Pensan Beach in the market town of Abigaile that was, according to reports, a known meeting spot for gay men. Pensan Beach is also just off the A55 and conveniently located on Peter Moore's way home from Holyhead. It was also a place Peter sometimes visited after work. That evening, Peter took a stroll on the beach and, according to him, spotted Antony exposing himself. Peter then calmly walked over to Antony and stabbed him six times in the stomach, killing him almost instantly. In a later police interview, Peter said of this murder, I walked around and looked at him, then I just took the knife out and stabbed him. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Anthony was reported as missing by his wife the following day, December 18th, 1995, but by then, his body had already been found by an early morning dog walker. After appealing to the local gay community for any information, the police received some tip-offs that led to the capture of Peter Moore. One person informed the police that he had recently been approached by a tall man dressed in black who had assaulted him at a house in Kinmill Bay. Another witness claimed that a van similar to the one driven by Peter Moore was spotted at Pensan Beach on the evening Anthony was killed. Peter Moore's name was also given to the police by an anonymous witness as someone they might want to speak with. As a result of several witness testimonies, Peter Moore was arrested on the morning of December 21st, 1995. 
Officers noticed a fresh-looking cut on his right palm between his thumb and index finger. A sample of his DNA was taken and sent off for analysis in the hope it would match a splash of blood found at Anthony Davis's murder scene. Spoiler alert, it was a match. Before that forensic connection was made, Peter Moore denied being responsible for the murders of Henry Roberts, Keith Randalls and Anthony Davis. Remember, the police didn't yet know about the murder of Edward Carthy. That all changed in the early hours of December 24th, 1995. Peter Moore called for his legal advisor, Dylan Rees-Jones, as he wanted to confess something. Peter told Dylan that he had murdered four men, not three. He had drawn a crude yet accurate diagram of the location where he murdered and dumped Edward Carthy's body in Clackinog Forest. He'd marked Edward's body's location with an X. During the taped interviews after that bombshell revelation, Peter Moore was asked why he killed Henry, Edward, Keith and Anthony. His response was terrifying. He said, I was pleased. I set out to do a job and it was a job well done. I did it for fun. Reflecting on the case some years later, the officer who arrested Peter, Detective Constable Dave Morris, said, He was a very dangerous man, one of the most dangerous men I ever met in my time as a police officer. Further revelations came when Peter confessed to having attacked dozens of men over a period of two decades. As with the murders, he'd done so for fun and sexual gratification. Here's what I had to say. When driving around, I would sometimes notice someone walking along the road late at night and I would stop and attack them. I would assault them with a police truncheon and strike them on the body and their heads many times. Usually I would be dressed as a policeman or in a Nazi uniform or something similar just to scare them. I heard that a few of these men had been seriously injured after the attacks. Peter dressed in a genuine North Wales police uniform to carry out some of the attacks. Said uniform was found at his house after his arrest. The police were baffled as to how he'd acquired such an item. Amongst the uniform at Darlington House were a police-issued helmet and truncheon, several Nazi flags, the plaque Peter stole from Henry Roberts's cottage, two German military caps, some SS-style black leather boots, rubber gags, handcuffs, and copies of newspapers with reports of Anthony Davis's murder as their headline. Police also found his five-inch hunting knife, which was later revealed to contain traces of the blood of all four men murdered by Peter Moore. In Peter's koi pond were items belonging to his victims, including watches, wallets and credit cards. Despite being effectively banged to rights, Peter suddenly changed his story and insisted that he had only pleaded guilty to cover for the real murderer, a friend of his called Jason. The name Jason had never been mentioned before, not even to Peter's legal advisor, Dylan Rees-Jones. The theory regarding Jason is that Peter was using the fictional serial killer Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th film series as a scapegoat. The trial of Peter Moore began on November 11th, 1996 at Mould Crown Court. It was overseen by Mr Justice Maurice Kay and took place in courtroom number two. Even though this was seemingly an open and shut case, the jury still had to be shown the evidence for each of the four murders Peter was accused of, so it took a few weeks before they could retire. When the jury of eight men and four women eventually retired, they returned to the courtroom two hours and 35 minutes later. They found Peter Moore guilty on all four counts of murder, and he was handed four life sentences with a recommendation he never be released from prison. Mr Justice Maurice Kay said in his closing statement, you were responsible for four sadistic murders in the space of three months. None of the victims had done you the slightest bit of harm. 
At no stage have you shown the slightest remorse or regret for the killings, nor for the twenty years of terror and violence that preceded them. I consider you to be as dangerous a man as it is possible to find. Peter was initially sent to HMP Frankland in County Durham to serve out his sentence, and it was whilst there that he was awarded damages to the amount of £12,842 by Chester District Judge Charles Newman in April 2000. After his arrest in December 1995, Peter claimed that two of his so-called friends had entered his property and stolen some of his belongings, either to sell or for personal use. The items in question were said to be antique furniture, cinema posters, jewellery and even some garden gnomes. Peter also got his court cost back. Trying his luck again in 2001, Peter next tried to claim compensation in the amount of £160,000 on the back of North Wales Police's failure to protect his home after being initially taken into custody. A district judge agreed that his case should be struck out because he had sod all chance of winning it if it went to court at a great cost to everyone involved, except for Peter of course. By 2008, Peter had been locked up for 13 years and the decision to ensure he will never be released from prison was made official. The High Court confirmed he was now one of the few prisoners on a whole life tariff, meaning the possibility of applying for parole was no longer available to him. Peter appealed that decision in 2011 along with fellow whole lifers Jeremy Bamber and Gary Vinter as they felt it amounted to inhuman or degrading treatment. The appeal ultimately failed when the European Court of Human Rights judges dismissed it on January 17, 2012. A spokesman for the Ministry of Justice had the following to say after the ruling. We argued vigorously that there are certain prisoners whose crimes are so appalling that they should never become eligible for parole. We are pleased that the European Court has upheld the whole life tariff as a legitimate sentence in British courts. I mentioned a man named Dylan Rees-Jones earlier in the story. He was Peter Moore's legal advisor before his arrest and he represented the serial killer all the way through to the conclusion of his trial. In September 2020, Dylan released a tell-all book about his role in Peter Moore's story. It provides an interesting insight into what went on behind the scenes with Peter's defence and was an invaluable resource for my research. It's called The Man in Black, Peter Moore, Wales's Worst Serial Killer, if you're interested in checking it out. According to Dylan... Peter asked if he could write a foreword for the book in which he would apologise to the victims' families and the people of North Wales as a whole. Dylan was never going to allow that to happen, but in the end, it never got any further than that suggestion as contact between the two suddenly stopped on January 26, 2020. Several letters had been sent between Dylan and Peter, the latter of whom was by then based at HMP Wakefield, where he remains to this day. In that final letter, Peter Moore wrote, Dear Dylan, my legal advisers have instructed me not to attend visits from you and not to provide case material to you as they don't want any further publicity to my case going to appeal. I regret this decision, but I have to do as instructed. Yours faithfully, Peter H. Moore. Apparently, Peter was unhappy with the book's content and threatened legal action should it be published. Ilolfa, the book's publisher, responded to that threat by saying, Clearly, we stand by every word in the book, which has been meticulously researched and written by his former solicitor, who provides a fascinating insight into the twisted mind of a depraved serial killer. On January 17, 2022, ten years to the day after Peter's appeal against his whole life tariff was dismissed, the BBC released an episode of their documentary series Darkland titled The Hunt for Wales' Worst Serial Killer. 
In it, former Chief Constable Jackie Roberts discusses re-examining the hunt for Peter Moore after being contacted by Lynn Haygarth, the sister of Edward Carthy. Lynn wanted to know precisely how her brother had been killed by Peter in the hope of finally getting closure. Home Office forensic pathologist Dr Donald Waite confirmed that Edward had died due to being stabbed three times in the stomach. Edward's head and right arm were missing when his body was discovered, but that was put down as being the work of wild animals in the forest rather than Peter Moore. A positive ID was achieved when Edward's skull was recovered and his dental records were checked. His skull was close to where his body was found. Edward's stepmom Beatrice said his murder destroyed the family and had a hugely detrimental impact on the mental health of her husband, Edward's dad. She said, My husband was never the same person again. It destroyed him completely. He went into shock, drew into himself and wouldn't talk about it. It horrified him. And that was the story of British murderer Peter Moore. Thanks again, Arwen Llewellyn, Gina Willison, Jaden and Amy for suggesting that case. I've got three new reviews to read this week. Charlie Jennings left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Absolutely Amazing. It reads, Perfect. Simply perfect. I love everything about this show. It's amazing. Stu is an amazing guy who shows incredible respect for the victims' families. Can't fault him. The Lady Yaya left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts Australia. Titled Easy Listening, it reads, Love this podcast. Very easy listening. In terms of voice, the content can obviously be pretty full-on. As many have mentioned, the cases are covered well and perfectly succinct. Also enjoy the waffle at the start. Never change. Listening from the Gold Coast, Australia. And Heather Adams recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, Five stars. Listen to every other murder podcast on Spotify, and this one is too addictive. Helps to get through an eight-hour shift. Brilliant storyteller. Can never get bored of Stuart's voice. Thank you, Charlie, the Lady Yaya, and Heather for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. Nearly at 500 ratings on there. Keep those coming. I really do appreciate them. Thank you. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on BritishMurders.com. Thank you and welcome to my newest Patreon member, Natasha Alsop. Natasha will now get early access to ad-free episodes of the show, as well as fortnightly bonus episodes. I've done 10 bonus episodes so far, so there's plenty to catch up on should you consider joining. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out. Congratulations to my recent book giveaway competition winners, Marty Shane and Jim Waring. I run book giveaways fairly often, so it's worth giving the show a follow on social media. You don't want to miss out. That's it for this episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio! Cheerio!